My name is Lauren Eliz Love, and welcome to this podcast. I'm so excited that you're here, and I can guarantee that you're craving success, abundance, prosperity, and all of the beautiful things that come with a thriving business. Here on the show, you are going to find all of the things that you really need to create that beautiful financial freedom that you crave. Inner work, personal transformation, and radical self-love are the tools that will excel you and propel you into that life that you desire. Here on the show, I will share stories and lessons from my life, along with interviews from great experts who've been able to do that work themselves. You'll hear lessons, breakthroughs, and tips to expand, to change, and to grow. Because growing a business is really about growing yourself. For more, you can visit laurenoflove.com. Are you ready? Let's dive in. You're tuning in to the Badass Business Podcast. This is a show dedicated to the woman who is ready to transform her business and elevate her life. Each week, your coach, Lauren Eliz Love, will bring you an expert interview or training that will help you elevate your life and business. We cover topics like business, mindset, strategy, wellness, and spirituality, because we know that growing a business is really about growing yourself. For more, visit badassbusinessbabe.com. When I started my journey of entrepreneurship, I think one of the biggest things I was the most excited about was sharing my story. In fact, sharing my story was pretty much the only reason I had for wanting to step into entrepreneurship in the first place. You see, my hunger and my calling to show up in the online space, sharing what I had been through in my life was a calling that I had way back when I was younger, probably around the age of 16, 17. I had found this book called A Million Little Pieces by James Fry. And if you don't know what this book is, it's essentially a memoir about a man who had a really fucked up life. I mean, like his story is really centered around his addiction to alcohol and his struggles trying to get sober and falling down the rabbit hole of having an addiction. And I remember reading this book at such a young age and being enamored by this man who was so bravely and boldly sharing its his truth. And I remember that book had a little sticker on it in the front. It said Oprah's bestseller. And at the time, I don't think I even knew who Oprah was. I was like that young. But I remember thinking that this guy got recognition and I don't want to say validation, but he got love and approval and success simply by sharing the deepest, darkest parts of himself. And at that point in my life, I was so deeply afraid of letting people see the deep and dark parts of myself because I grew up with two parents who were very much afraid of people seeing them. I'm going to get into that story in a minute. So if you don't know, James Fry uh, and the author of A Million Little Pieces was eventually cast uh, cast out by the world. He was brought back on Oprah's show and Oprah essentially accused him of being a liar because a journalist had found out that much of his story was fabricated. Now, it's important to note, I didn't really know that at the time, 
But reading his book and having him share his story made me feel like there was possibly an opportunity for me to show up and be myself publicly and to receive love and validation and success simply by being me. I thought that was so cool. And so in today's episode of the Badass Business Podcast, I'm going to take a step into that energy again. When I started entrepreneurship, much of my journey was about sharing vulnerability. I talked about things that I had been through in my life, sexual trauma, rape, assault, mental illness, struggling with addiction, being married to an addict. I talked about so much of what I had been through and my belief was that if I could just show up to be myself, I would receive the success and the achievement that I was hoping for in the online space. And so my business was a blog and I was growing my audience and I was building my email list and I was sharing on Pinterest every day and I was writing and doing video around all of this content of vulnerability. And that's what really got me to the multiple six-figure level of my brand, which was called What is Perfection? And I want to bring that back today. You know, sometimes I think about Badass Business Babe, which was part two of my entrepreneur journey. And I think about how it's so important for me to continuously step back into that. It's so important for me to share what I've been through and the ups and downs of my life. And we've had so many new followers over the years that I think it's time I put this hat back on, this hat of vulnerability, and I share what I've been through with you guys. So in this episode, I'm going to be sharing my mental health story, the journey that has brought me to where I am today, and everything, literally everything that I've been through with mental illness. So I just want to preface this podcast episode by letting you know I'm going to be sharing a lot here today, and it may not be suitable for kids. So if you're driving in the car, put on your headphones later, you know, save this episode for some quiet time. And I hope it inspires you. I hope in some way you relate to it. And I hope above all else, you know, you're not alone in whatever you're going through. I think it would be kind of cool to tell you about my family (laughs) said no one ever (laughs) but I think it's a really important part of my narrative like I am who I am because of how I grew up right I was raised in a very Catholic Italian family my both of my parents were raised by their parents who were right off the boat didn't speak much of any English when they came here. My grandfather actually always used to tell this story. He came through Ellis Island with a suitcase of China and that was all he had. And I thought like, wow, that's a success story, right? He went from that to creating a a beautiful Italian leather business. My, My grandfather was a businessman. And sometimes I like to think that I've embodied some of his energy as he's passed on. Um, some the good stuff, you know, not the bad stuff. My grandfather also was very stubborn and cold, and he had a hard time allowing my father, this was my dad's dad, allowing my father to really be who he was. My father was gay. My dad uh, grew up quiet and hiding that his entire life. In fact, we just found out three years ago or so when he told all of us, my mom included, um, that he was gay. And so, I grew up with one parent, my masculine energy, really teaching me that 
you know, indirectly, of course, that who you really are is not important. What's important is that you're approved of by other people. What's important is that you put on a happy face. What's important is that other people see you as successful. And and that's really, you know, not in part his fault, but really because he was doing the best that he could with what he knew. And what he knew was hide. And so I grew up in this energy of hiding and pretending to be something you're not and not being too vulnerable or letting people see you. My mother was also in that energy as well. She grew up um, in a family of five and her father died in her home when she was really young. And so my mom was afraid of everything. You know, it's so important to remember, like, with so much love and to any of my family members who happen to be listening to this podcast, uh, you know, people do the best that they can with what they know, right? We're all victims, raising victims, raising victims. This is something Louise Hay says. And so it's not to blame the people in your life. It's not for you as a parent to go, oh my God, I'm probably fucking up my kids. It's simply just this awareness of people become who they are based on what they experience and witness and absorb growing up. And as adults, we have to make a choice to break that lineage, to break that pattern. And unfortunately, so few of us do because we're trying to get our family's love and acceptance. And so when I grew up, I had this very emotional energy about me. I I had my shit together, so to speak, for much of my life until my teenage years. My mom always used to joke that as a kid, she would like put me in the playpen and I would just like sit there and like watch kids interact. Like I didn't need anything. I was very present and just just there, you know, <laughs> like this little baby guru. I always loved that she said that. It made me feel really proud. Uh, but as I got older, I started to become this woman who felt a calling to share who she was. I felt this desire to express my truth and be seen. And at the same time, I had this really deep desire to be loved and, and seen by people because I felt like I wasn't, right? And so Here's this important part of my narrative to remember, and I think this speaks to so many of us. What we resist about ourselves, right, becomes a really ugly, shadowy part of us. And so because I was resisting being myself and being true to who I was and owning my identity because I was so resistant of that, it, it's almost like it's a, a wound that, like, you're, you haven't treated and it becomes infected and it's suddenly it's like this this monster, right? That was my life. That was my my journey of becoming a woman. And so I wanted so desperately to find love and I, I dated assholes and I found really terrible friends because I didn't think I was good enough for the people who were really good people, right? And I just created this life that was just so disastrous. I mean, I remember in, in grade school, I had a, a girl who was supposedly my best friend. She, she broke into my sister's piggy bank, my little sister, and took her money. She pretended to be my friend, and she had my boyfriend cheat on me to like seek revenge for why she deeply hated me. So these were just like some of the people that I was associating with. And I remember um, probably around the grade school time, I had this one friend that um, was also kind of similar to me. She was misunderstood. She was feeling, I think, a little bit unseen and unheard in her family. And something had happened in our personal environment where she had gone into a really deep sadness and she started to cut herself. Now, this was in, you know, middle school. I must have been in like 
seventh grade, eighth grade, and she was my best friend. And I remember like learning for the first time what this was, right? You know, I think we can all remember like that one girl that we knew when we were younger who introduced us to darkness, or maybe we were that girl who just felt plagued and overwhelmed by sadness. And so I remember uh, after that, I went into a deep sadness because she got pulled from school. She was no longer around. It's really unhappy. And my mom, you know, after a couple of days of me lying on the couch, she said, you know, I think you really need to go talk to somebody. And my parents, for the first time, were concerned about me. And spending my whole entire life with my parents thinking, oh, she's got it. Like, she has her shit together. She could figure it out. And also having me crave a lot of love. I was in this moment of suddenly being cared for and concerned about by my parents. And I was like, oh, my God. Wow. Attention. (laughs) So the story I started to form for myself was that, number one, there might be something wrong with me. And number two, when there is something wrong with me, I get acceptance. I get love. I get attention. And so I remember going to the doctor and sitting down with this like psychiatrist, therapist person. I don't even remember who it was. And just having my parents be told for the first time that I may be um, borderline personality mood disordered. And I, I don't even remember like the right terminology for this, but my mother was concerned. The doctor said this might be a possibility. And I'm like, uh, okay, I don't know. So then time passes, I I go on my life. And what is so important to remember is that in my need of finding love and acceptance from people, I also got involved with the wrong types of men or boys at the time. I was 13, 14, and I found this 17-year-old guy in public school because I went to Catholic school. And he paid attention to me, and he liked me, and he told me I was pretty and Um, one day when I was babysitting my sisters, he broke into my house with six of his friends and he molested me. He stole things from my parents and, uh, I didn't really identify like what that was because nobody had ever told me like, this is what molestation is. This is what assault is. This is what you need to be aware of. Like I was not given those tools. And so I just kind of brushed it off. And I remember, you know, I had put my sisters in the basement closet and I said, just stay here. Like, I'll let you know when this is all done. And uh, when everything was over, um, I remember just wanting to clean up the house and pretend like it never happened. And that was what I did for years. You know, I think as kids, when we experience something that puts us in a very victim-like experience or is a victim experience, we don't really know what to do with that if nobody's ever taught us what that is. And so for me, I, I burdened that, that shame because I thought I had done something wrong. I thought it was my fault. I thought that if I told my parents, I would get in trouble. And then, you know, that would just be humiliating. So I just pretended like this never happened. And I went about my life. I went through high school. And I continued to go down that path of like feeling like I wasn't enough and and looking for things outside of myself. And so when I got into college my freshman year, I had found another boy who paid attention to me and I liked it. I felt really good and I felt pretty and accepted and seen. And I think, you know, oftentimes we as as young women, we're not really taught like how to find those emotions within ourselves, right? 
And so this was my pattern. I was looking outside of myself all the time for love and validation and approval. And uh, at this time, I wasn't taking any medication. I was just kind of being a teenager in her freshman year of college and enjoying life. And uh, this man who took attention to me ended up raping me right before spring break. And I remember after that, it was almost like everything that I had suppressed from years of like what I had, what had happened to me when I was younger. And then this, you know, years later, it was like all of it was coming to the surface. All of it was consuming me. And I started to recognize for the first time that what had happened to me when I was younger was actually an assault was actually something that was bad. It wasn't me having a party and inviting people over. It was six nearly adult men breaking into my house and assaulting me. And now here I am, also a rape victim for the first time, confused about all of this and really trying to make it all go away. And I stepped into this huge depression, this huge darkness poured over me and I stopped going to my classes in college. I stayed in my bedroom for days on end. I couldn't get out of bed. I remember the night it actually happened. I went back to my dorm room and took a shower and sat on the floor and just sobbed of that shower. I felt so devastated. And at the time, you know, I was in this relationship with this man. So I had a hard time really identifying what this was, right? I knew something bad happened. I knew I was taken advantage of. But in a college environment where everybody's friends with everybody, right, it's so hard for you to uh, speak your truth when it outs somebody who has done something wrong, right? And so I really struggled with this concept of like, this is only for me to know. I can't really tell anybody about this. And so all of this was just consuming me. And I I think for, for a lot of people, mental illness is start different ways, right? And so there's the idea that mental illness is caused by a deficiency of vitamins. There's a idea that mental illness is just something you're born with. There's an idea that mental illness is something that, you know, is actually happening in your gut. And there are all these different reasons. And for me, I've always, I've spent much of my life asking this question, why, right? Like, why did this happen? Where did this happen? And I, I think the only thing I can come back to is trauma, and not knowing how to navigate that as a young adult and going into post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms where I was afraid to leave my dorm room and I was afraid to meet new people. And anytime I saw a man at a grocery store near me, I'd have a panic attack, right? I very much had this issue that wasn't being dealt with because I wasn't telling anybody, right? And so... Um, one night I decided that I wasn't going to live anymore. And again, this is why I think I'm like, oh my God, what are you doing sharing all of this? But I, I think there's somebody out here who needs to hear this. Um, and if it's not you, that's okay, right? Uh, but one night I decided I, I wasn't going to live anymore. And uh, there was a kid who was, again, not such a good kid in our area, uh, who was dealing prescription pills, which is a very common thing uh, or was a common thing in our college environment. And so I downed a, a bunch of Ambien and a bunch of Adderall at the same time. And my belief was that, hey, maybe these two things, one is for keeping you awake and alert and focused, and the other one's going to knock you out. Maybe if I just put these two things in my body at the same time at large amounts, it'll be this explosion. 
and uh, I won't be here anymore. So I took all these pills. I went to bed. And the next morning I woke up and I remember this was so, it was so uncomfortable. And unlike anything I experienced, I didn't die, right? I, I was awake. I was seeing double and triple. So if like somebody was looking at me, I would see three of them. And I turned to my my roommate. She had just gotten, I believe she had just gotten back from class because I was, you know, skipping all these classes and not going to class because I was so depressed. I said, you need to call an ambulance. You, you need to call somebody. Um, something's not right. I've taken these pills. And so my roommate, who was so kind and just an incredible fucking human being, um, she didn't want to get in trouble maybe or she didn't know what to do. And so she, maybe I even told her to call this person. I don't know, but she called my, my rapist because she didn't know. And so now here I am in this disaster of this mental health, uh, <laughs> disaster. I mean, there's no way to describe it. It was a mess. And, uh, he's taking me to the hospital and the whole time he's cursing at me and he's screaming at me and I'm catatonic, like leaning against the window of the car, um, And then I black out and I wake up probably about eight hours or so later in the hospital on an IV and he's there next to me with this big teddy bear. And so as a kid, because guys, I was a kid, I was my freshman year of college, right? My thought is I don't want to get in trouble. I've, I've screwed up. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want my parents to know. So I call my parents and I say, look, don't freak out. I, I was really dehydrated and I fainted and I went to the hospital. And my mom's like, are you okay? Like, is everything all right? Do you need us to come? No, no, no. I'm fine. It's fine. So between that moment and, um, you know, the, the weeks that follow, I still, don't have this feeling of trauma going away. I'm still struggling. I'm still feeling suicidal. I'm still having depressive thoughts. And I tell somebody, I tell my friend, I say, you know, um, I'm really depressed. And this particular girl, again, does not know of my rape, does not know of my trauma, does not know what has just happened to me on this college campus. She had experience with mental health and she said, you need to go talk to somebody. So they took me to uh, the on-campus psychiatrist and I'm at the on-campus psychiatrist and she's asking me some questions and blah, blah, blah. She says, you're suicidal. If you're having suicidal thoughts, you need to go to the hospital. And so now I'm going back to the hospital, but this time I'm intentional and I'm deciding to go there and I'm making this conscious decision that I'm going to go get help. And I don't know what that looks like. You know, maybe they'll send me to a therapist. Maybe they'll take me, you know, to go talk to somebody more professional in the hospital. I don't know. So I go I, I believe I, I take a, I think I take an ambulance there or I drive. I cannot remember. Um, it's kind of a blurry couple of years, but uh, I get there. I get to the hospital and this is a different hospital than the other hospital, but the hospitals start talking and they say, well, I noticed this girl like was at this hospital previously, like what happened there. And the doctor probably tells my doctor now as I'm sitting in this hospital that I overdosed. Um, and so they don't let me leave and they find out that I'm really actually very much a threat to myself and I'm forced to stay in this hospital. This episode of the Badass Business Podcast is brought to you by one of our all-time favorite courses, Good Enough Reprogramming. 
This is for the woman who finds herself having all of the ideas, but completely self-sabotaging every time she sits down at her computer to actually do the work. This program was designed to help you subconsciously change the beliefs that you have about being successful, about money, about doing work, and about accomplishing your dreams. So often we are running old stories, old beliefs, old patterns on autopilot, unconsciously realizing that they are stopping us from taking action to creating the life and the business that we truly deserve. To enroll in this program, simply go to badassbusinessbabe.com forward slash good enough, and you can get access to this incredible offer to finally reprogram your subconscious mind so that you can start creating the life that you deserve. And so hours and hours go by and I'm just sitting there and they have this officer who starts to follow me around to the point where I'm not even allowed to go to the bathroom by myself. And again, I'm, I'm this young adult, uh, barely. I'm 19, I'm young, I'm inexperienced, I don't know what any of this is. And the doctor says to me, we, we're going to take you somewhere, you're going to go to a facility. And I'm like, what? Like a facility? Like what? I don't understand. And he says, look, if, you, you know, if you're having suicidal thoughts and you're not taking care of yourself, and I heard, you know, we talked to this other hospital, you're a threat to yourself and others and you, and you need to go to a place where they can help you. And I said, no, you can't make me. And he said, well, honey, look, if you don't go, the insurance company is going to find out that you rejected the doctor's orders. And then your parents are going to have to pay more than $60,000 for these medical bills. And at the time, my father had just lost his job. And we were in financial stress as a family. And I knew this was probably the worst thing that I could possibly do. So I surrendered and I went. And I went to this place. It was called Carrier Clinic. It was in New Jersey. And while all my friends are getting ready for spring break because it's like finals week or whatever for the semester, I'm getting welcomed into this psychiatric facility with people who are really mentally ill. And they're was this moment for me where I, I just felt this like deep amount of fear because it was so unfamiliar and it was so inexperienced with any of this. I had never taken, um, you know, I had, I don't even know how to say this. I had never thought that my life would take that turn. I had never expected to have something so deeply wrong with me that I needed to be institutionalized. And while I was in there, I remember having a choice. I could tell people what had happened to me or I could choose to keep it quiet. And uh, there's a lot that happened there. Actually, you know, when you get taken in, if you've never, if you, if you don't know somebody who's been to one of these places, they search you. Um, you know, they, they make you, they go through all of your belongings. I remember bringing a notebook and it, it was a spiral notebook and then they took it from me. I wasn't allowed to bring it in because it could have been a weapon. I wasn't allowed to bring my pen in because it could have been a weapon. It was like just this feeling of shame and like removing all of these liberties that like we often take such advantage of. Um, I had no freedom. My phone was taken from me. 
I remember my friend went and got me a box of cigarettes because I was a smoker at the time. And I just clung on to like some of those small things that I knew. And so I entered this facility and I always say I'm going to like write a book about this because it was just so mind blowing to me. I was probably one of the youngest people there. And as I walk through, it's like this big white hallway with lots of neon lights. And I, by the time I got in there, it was really late and they put me with a roommate. I Everybody has like a roommate and you're not allowed to shut your door all the way. So like we... we go into this room where this woman is already sleeping and the lady's like, you're going to sleep here tonight. Um, and I remember as I walked down that hallway, there was a woman who was also walking down the hallway at night and she goes, my name is Rosemary. And I said, hi, Rosemary. And I'm like thinking, okay, not so bad. Like I'm going to make friends here, oddly enough, because I'm in that state. She says, I just want to let you know Casper is raping Little Red Riding Hood in the sunroom. She was a little kooky, this lady, a little kooky. And so there were state patients there. There were people who had to be there because they were state mandated, like Rosemary. They had nowhere to go. There were also people who were a little bit older that were court ordered who had maybe, um, you know, had a DWI or a DUI and, and were forced to go to a facility to get treatment. So there were addicts. There were people with um, eating disorders. There were people who were really depressed and bipolar. And then there was me. And I didn't really feel like I had fit any of these categories. And I also, too, I think, you know, one of the things that people forget with rape and trauma and what they've been through um, is that you're often really, like, afraid to talk about it because, especially in situations like this, you feel like, uh, who are you to complain? You know, like, I sat in this circle with women one of the, I think it was the next day, it was a therapy session and we were all sitting and sharing men and women, like what they had been through. And it was like a healing circle. And this one woman was talking about how her father had raped her for years, her stepfather. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I can't say what I've been through. Like, that's not nearly as terrible as her stuff. And so I kept it secret. I remember calling my parents because that was really important. I had to call my parents and I let them know, hey, I'm in this place. I'm, I'm working on some stuff. And um, my parents never came to visit me. I told them not to. But I always wonder why they didn't. You know, I, I feel like if I had kids and uh, they were 19, I would say, fuck you, I'm coming. <laughs> uh, I was very much in this experience on my own to the point where some of my friends who were in college just a couple of miles away uh, would tell me they would come to visit and every day I would come into the lobby and I would wait and, and no one would arrive. But anyway, this was the start for me of where I started to identify with something being wrong with me instead of actually looking at my trauma and not telling anybody what I had been through not mentioning it to doctors. I got asked some questions about my mood. I got asked some questions about how I usually am. I must have seen that doctor for all of 10 or 15 minutes before he prescribed me a medication called Seroquel. Now, if you don't know what Seroquel is, it's now a, a medication that they use for large, angry prisoners to sedate them and calm them. In less than two weeks, I gained about 30 pounds. Uh, I couldn't get out of bed without assistance. It was a sedative. It really knocked me out. I was diagnosed. Uh, and at the time, if I go back in my journals, I think it was borderline personality disorder or it was bipolar disorder. These were words that were thrown around for much of uh, my teenage years and the years that followed. 
because I was never looking at what I had been through. And who knows, maybe I actually did have bipolar disorder. Maybe there was something going on there. But what doctors saw was a girl who was really happy sometimes and for some reason was in a really deep depressive state. My depressive states continued. Uh, when I left that hospital, the, the, my rapist had told everybody on campus that I went crazy and was in a psychiatric ward or a mental institution is what he called it. And I knew in that moment there was no going back to the school, right? I, I was done. I started looking to apply at other colleges. I quickly packed things up and moved back home. And um, I kind of thought that if I just did what the doctor said, I would be happy. If I just took a pill, I would be happy. And there sparked the journey of using medications to treat my mind. And I think it's like really important for me to share with you guys. Um, you know, I am not discrediting mental health and taking medication. And I'm not saying that people out there shouldn't be taking medication. Or I'm not even saying that if you've been through a trauma, you don't need medication. I'm not saying any of that. I'm simply sharing my story here. Uh, and I think for me, when I look back, I was using medication to cope with every piece of anxiety, stress, depression, overwhelm, exhaustion that I was feeling. So when I felt sad and I was on one medication, we tried a new one. And when I started to feel anxiety, instead of stopping that medication, we got a second one. And there was one point where I was taking four or five different medications, this cocktail, to keep me in this zen calm state that was never going to come. I went on that journey for years to the point where when I quit my corporate job in 2015, I was at the time still on medication. And I was starting to heal my life and I was slowly coming off of these meds, but having been through years of conditioning and being uh, somebody who was taking these medications, I had a really hard time navigating the emotions that I had suppressed for so long. So when I came off of meds, I had a really hard time. <laughs> I started to drink to cope with stress. I started to um, to form some really unhealthy habits because I didn't know how to cope with the emotions that I was feeling. I had spent years ignoring them. And I started to probably around, you know, between 2012 and 2015, I started to explore the possibility that maybe I actually didn't need medication. I've asked myself this question, what if all of these years I've been using medication to hide the emotions that I have not navigated or healed from and every time the medications stop working, they're, they're no longer working because I need to look at this, not because I need a new medication. And so between 2012 and 2015, I, I spent those years slowly navigating, removing those things from my life. I started to fall into personal development work. I started to heal. I started to study people like Tony Robbins and Wayne Dyer and Gabby Bernstein to heal my own personal life. And things started to change. It was magical. The moment I decided that I was going to actually take control of my life and not be a victim of my circumstances, it was like the universe started to show me the way. Everything started to line up. Relationships that were no longer in alignment fell apart. Opportunities that would allow me the growth to be my higher self started to appear. It was like suddenly everything started to make sense. And it was almost like the universe was showing me, yes, this is the way. Do the work. This is the way. And so I did that. And at the same time, 
I didn't. You know, I used alcohol as a way to disappear. I smoked a lot of pot as a way to disappear. And I, I had to learn how to navigate the healing and learn how it was okay to feel pain and hurt from the trauma that I had been through. And then when I actually looked at it, it would go away. And so I did this. <clears throat> and as things started to change in my life, as I started to grow, as I started to become the woman that I think I was truly meant to be, I got this calling to share it. And I thought back to that book, James Fry, A Million Little Pieces. I thought back to this man who so openly just talked about his shadow, like he wasn't afraid of judgment or criticism. And I, I thought I'd like to be somebody like that. And so I started to write. And I would sit down in front of my desk. I bought this computer for myself. I was working a corporate job. I was single for the first time. I had a new apartment uh, in a not-so-nice area of the Bronx. But I was getting my shit together. I was recently divorced. And I was ready to share. And so I'd write. And I, I, I would spend these afternoons trying to write chapters of a book and failing miserably and then writing blog posts that, you know, just were such a mess. And I, I just got used to public vulnerability. I got used to openly expressing myself. And over time, I wanted to learn what it was like to feel again, to not be in this fog of taking antipsychotics, to, to really know what my body naturally felt like. I wanted to feel alive again. And so I slowly started to come off my medication and things in my life started to unfold and get better. And I developed a spiritual connection and, and that started to change my life. And I met the man of my dreams who I fell in love with. And, you know, over time, that calling and that whisper to help other people got louder and louder with the more work I did on myself. And I knew I was like, I had spent so many years in that victim mentality of like, why has this happened to me? Why do I have a mental illness? Why, why am I a victim of, of rape? Why did all these things happen to me? And I just had this recognition in my, in my heart that like, I meant to teach. I meant to share. I am meant to, this story is not just mine right? Like this is not just for me. This is a story that other people need to hear that can help other people. And that's why I've been through this. And suddenly the anger that I felt, the uh, disappointment I felt, the guilt and the shame that I felt for what I had been through in my life became the utmost love and appreciation. I became so truly grateful for what I had been through because it made me who I was. And I liked who I was for the first time. And so I knew if I could get there, I want to help other women get there too. And so these blog posts and these attempted books started to turn into just me sharing my vulnerability with a lesson attached to it rather than just a memoir style. It was, let me share with you what I've been through, but then let me also teach you the lesson here so that you know how to navigate things like this in your own life. And one day... I turned to my boyfriend and I said, I really want to quit my job and start a blog and really create it and really build success. 
And I was so afraid in that moment, again, with this story of vulnerability and not allowing people to love me for who I am. I was so deeply afraid that this man who I loved would tell me I was stupid or crazy or that I couldn't do something like that or I was being selfish. And instead, he said, yeah, if not now, when? You got to do it. So we did. And the more I grew and the more I shared and the more I opened up about on my blog, which was called What is Perfection?, the more I started to receive healing that I didn't even know was possible. I started to receive praise for my content. I started to receive messages from women who are saying, oh my God, I've been through things like this. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing. Um, I'm so inspired by your story. How can I navigate these things too? And that was a pivotal question for me because it transitioned my brand from a blog that was just a bunch of memoir style writings with a lesson attached to transitioning into this place where I was going to dedicate my life to teaching people and helping people get a result in their life that was emotional, that was transformative, that was inspiring. And then my mission stopped being about me and it started being about the thousands of women that I could visualize who were going through similar things that I really wanted to help. And What is Perfection became a personal development platform that provided coaching and inspiration and tips and vulnerability, a lot of vulnerability for the women out there. And over time, my mental health started to become less of an issue because I wasn't traumatized by my victim past. I was empowered by it. I was using it to help other people. It was becoming, my mess was becoming my my message and my greatest gift. And so I think it's so important to remember this, that like with every dark opportunity in life, there there is a light on the other side. And you have a choice to look at what you've been through as a tragedy and a travesty. Or you can say, you know what, I am going to sure as shit make this my greatest gift. This happened to me for a reason. And it's a great one. And that's where my life started to go. And medication became less of a priority for me. And I had to learn how to navigate that. At one point a couple of years ago, I came off of medication, but I was still drinking. I had a hard time. I wasn't really meditating. I I didn't know how to quiet my mind without substances. And so there was a lot of this chatter every time I came off of medication. And I, I remember this vividly. It was about two years ago. I was medication-free. I was drinking to cope with stress. I was eating poorly. And I almost had to like learn how to care for my body because for the longest time I wasn't hearing my body because it was numbed out with with medication for so long. So when I felt anxiety, instead of going to alcohol, I had to learn how to quiet my mind through meditation. And instead of... uh, you know, taking a pill, I had to learn how to use diet and nutrition to take care of my body, to remove stress and anxiety that existed within my body. You know, we often think mental illness is like this mind thing and it's like just the mind, but there's a mind-body connection there that for me, when I've learned how to address that and take care of it, it has been transformational for me. So some of the things I started doing, and I, I'll just say, guys, please don't 
listen to this and go, oh, Lauren says I can stop my medication. Like, please, that's not what this episode is. Some of the things I started doing that really changed my life have become self-care practice. And they're routine things that I call on and rely on as I continue to heal. I meditate every week, not every day, every week. I journal every day. For the last seven years, I've been sitting with a journal at least once a day. And I'm processing my feelings. I'm writing down my thoughts. I'm learning how to navigate the monkey brain, right? I think people in, in guru yogi land talk about this, this monkey brain of just like crazy thought that doesn't stop. I've learned how to quiet that. I've learned how to recognize that thoughts are not me. So when I have a thought that is fear based, I am not fearful. My thought is, and I can choose to control that. I can choose to silence that. I can choose to say, thank you. I hear you. I'm going to choose again. I also focus on my wellness now more than ever before. I do things like take vitamin D and B12 regularly because these are vitamins that I know my body is undernourished in. And I know that when your body is undernourished in B12 and vitamin D, it can affect things like your thyroid and your energy levels and your mood and your anxiety and your stress. And so I've started to take this holistic approach to caring for myself. And when I started to do that, I lived fully. And I think back to the life that I used to have where everything was solved with a pill. You're stressed, take a pill. You have a headache, take a pill. You have anxiety, take a pill. And I've learned how to navigate healing my body in a way that is dimensional and expansive and intuitive and beautiful. And yes, not every day is great. Yes, I have flare-ups. Yes, there are times where I fall off track. But the most important part of my journey is that I am not a victim of my circumstances. I am the creator of my life. And I've chosen every single day to create with possibility. And instead of saying, well, I was raped, so now I'm going to be on medication for the rest of my life. Or I have depression, so I'm going to be on medication for the rest of my life. Instead of choosing that, I've chosen something else. I've chosen the belief that because of what I've been through, I'm going to be navigating healing for the rest of my life. And that's a choice. I'm going to navigate growing and expanding and learning how to care for myself as the utmost priority for the rest of my life. And I just want all of you guys to know that that is a gift. You could choose to say that that's something terrible, but I think there are hundreds of thousands and millions of people who die never really having lived, who are numbing themselves with things like drugs and substances and alcohol and food, and they never wake up. And I'm awake. I'm awake because of what I've been through. I'm awake because I know living is the greatest gift. I'm awake because I almost died trying to figure those things out. And I want everybody to wake up. And that's why I do what I do. That's why I'm here. That's why this is my mission. And that's why I share vulnerably in such a weird way. (laughs) This is my purpose. And so all of you guys have a mess. That's your message. 
All of you have shadowy parts of yourselves that you're hiding for fear of judgment. And when you really show up to be vulnerable and true, when you really start to own who you are, the world falls in love with you because you're whole and you're awake and you're not hiding a part of yourself. So I really want to challenge you, whoever you are out there, it's time to own who you are. It's time to say, I've been through things and that's okay. It's time to say, I love my past because it's made me who I am. It's time to forgive those parts of you and those experiences that maybe weren't that great. It's time to move forward. And you can do that one small step at a time. 